<laughs> what I did was I snuck them into the Saturday morning program, and they did just as well or better as the children who had the 130 IQs. Hello, welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Joseph Renzulli. Joseph, I've got his website here, is a leader and pioneer in gifted education and applying the pedagogy of gifted education teaching strategies to all students. The American Psychological Association named him among the top 25 most influential psychologists in the world. He also received the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Educators, the Harold W. McGraw Jr. Award uh, for Innovation in Education. He was also a consultant to the White House Task Force on Education of the Gifted and Talented. He's currently a professor of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut, where he also served as director of the National Research Center on the Gifted and Talented. We talk in this conversation about his life's work. He, Joseph is now 86 now, so it's a very interesting conversation looking back at his, his, uh, his entire career um, and his groundbreaking work on the three-ring conception of giftedness, which I believe is the most viewed, most cited article in the field. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's going to be one of several with leading scholars uh, from the giftedness and intelligence uh, research community. So I will create a playlist so that you can view the other interviews that I have with these leading scholars. It's something that I'm very much interested in and uh, my own research is is uh, on this area. So I, I very much enjoy talking to, to Joseph. Um, if you do enjoy this, give it a like, subscribe, and without further ado, I give you the wonderful Dr. Joseph Renzulli. The first question that I wanted to ask you is probably the standard question that you've had a million times. What does it actually mean to be gifted? Well, that's, again, always a very good first question. And um, before I talk a little bit about the definition that I developed, I want to mention that um, I always talk about two types of giftedness. And one I call uh, schoolhouse or lesson learning giftedness. Those are the kids that go to school well. They get all the answers right. They do well on their tests. And um, they're ordinarily considered to be gifted in the very academic sense of the term. The second is what I focus my work on, actually. And uh, I call it creative, productive giftedness. And I believe that this is not just being a school smart, but also being able to apply knowledge and thinking skills to areas that produce some type of creative product. And uh, it's uh, really the basis for my major article, which is called the, uh, the Three Ring Conception of Giftedness. And a little bit of history on that. When I entered the academic end of the game in the late 1960s, um, the whole idea of who's gifted and who's not gifted was very simply determined by an IQ score. And ordinarily, 130 IQ was considered to be gifted. 129, sorry, you missed it by a point. However, <clears throat> one of the things that I've been fond of ever since a child, actually, uh, is uh, biography. And uh, in reading biographies of many 
people who have made major contributions. And when I say major contributions, I don't just mean famous people, Nobel Prize winners, or people like that. Uh, I think of a young person, for example, uh, that did a study on the uh, inaccessibility of playgrounds to children with any kind of disability and ultimately came up with a, uh, a friendly access playground. It was a 12-year-old girl and actually uh, caused her uh, city to appropriate funds to build a playground, a playground equipment that was accessible by young children in wheelchairs or with some kind of disability. Um, all of this resulted uh, again in the development of an article. I think it was first published uh, in the in the uh, 70s uh, called "What Makes Giftedness: Reexamining a Definition." And I must tell you that it was unceremoniously rejected by all of the major gifted journals at the time, because again, they had a concept based on the work of Lewis Terman that 130 was what makes giftedness. And uh, the three ring conception looks at above average ability in a particular area. Uh, it might be filmmaking, it might be cooking, <laughs> it might be uh, writing poetry. Um, creativity, the ability to look at ideas new and different ways. And uh, the third circle was called task commitment. And think of that as a refined or focused form of motivation. Psychologists treat motivation in a general sense, a fashion. You're motivated to be a good teacher or swimmer. Um, but um, past commitment is much more focused on a particular area and ordinarily an area which you have a very, very strong interest. And the three rings interact so that when they overlap in the center of the diagram, we have what I call gifted behaviors. These three rings don't make you uh, gifted in the sense of blue eyes or being over six feet tall. There are a series of behaviors that people apply. And again, in my work, I focus on pedagogy that deals with developing creative, productive giftedness in young people, as opposed to just doing well. Obviously, we want children to do well in traditional academic settings. Um, the other part of my work that is uh, very interesting, I think, is the fact that I applied this to a pedagogical model, which is called the, the uh, enrichment triad model. And it's three types of interrelated enrichment that we apply to young people, but we apply type one and type two to all children. Type one is exposing uh, young people to issues, ideas, names, dates, authors, events, in which they might develop an interest that causes them to want to do follow-up. Type two enrichment is a series of thinking skills and creativity skills that are necessary to follow up a topic in a more professional manner. Uh, type three enrichment is individual and small group investigations of real problems. And I'm always asked what makes a problem real. And there are four things that make a problem real. The first is personalization of interest. It's not just something that is a part of a prescribed curriculum. It might be something in that curriculum that you have a strong interest in. 
The second is uh, the use of authentic methodology to pursue that interest. And uh, one of the things that I'm fond of talking about is providing young people with how-to books. For example, how to be a puppeteer or how to do a scientific experiment. There are really literally hundreds of these kinds of books. Many of them are in arts and crafts, but there are a lot of them that uh, are much more focused on um, uh, research investigative kinds of activities. The third area, I, I sometimes like to describe this way, the young person thinking, feeling, feeling's very important here, and doing like the practicing professional, even if it's at a more junior level than a scientist from Cambridge or Oxford or a filmmaker from Hollywood, uh, they're doing what the big guys do, only at a more junior level. And so that's really uh, the three-ring conception and the enrichment triad model have really been the focus of, again, who are they? And then what do you do with them? Mm -hmm. This is, that's a really good primer. Um, I think it would, be, it would be useful to perhaps restrict momentarily um, the focus here and think about the academically gifted children. For those children in your model, is it still a safe assumption that they will have a very high IQ if they are doing the traditionally academic? Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And maybe I can <clears throat> emphasize this with a story. Um, when the Russians shot that little basketball-sized thing into space, the superintendent of my school asked me if I would develop a science program uh, on Saturday mornings for, quote, gifted children. And he sent me a list of all of the middle-grade children in the school district that had IQs of 130 and above. And I did indeed set up that program. But because I was a general science teacher, I had some young people that were remarkably interested in and creative in science that simply didn't make the IQ cutoff score point. Mm -hmm. so what I did was I snuck them into the Saturday morning program, and they did just as well or better as the children who had the 130 IQs. And so um, I believe that we must look at other things other than just IQ to determine who can develop the behaviors, again, for what I call creative productive giftedness. And that's why in the triad model, I offer types one and two, general enrichment to all students. Uh, I think that um, this also, if you look at the biographies of a lot of famous people, they were not necessarily good lesson learners. Um, but they had other kinds of traits that, again, resulted in the circles in the three ring that I call uh, creativity and task mm -hmm. commitment. Now, I don't think these things ne necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. If you have, for example, an advanced placement or honors course, let's say in history, I believe that that's good. However, I want that course not to be just more information, learning more information faster. I want somewhere embedded in that course 
what I call a process of enrichment curricular infusion, that we're going to give those young people not just the learning more about history at a faster rate, but rather to apply what they know about history, apply their thinking skills to perhaps doing a historical creative project. Um, the third thing in what makes a problem real is that there's no single predetermined correct answer. So much of schoolhouse giftedness or lesson learning giftedness is finding the right answer, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, I believe that um, there are some things that don't have a correct answer, one right answer, or even a correct way of investigating it. The fourth thing uh, is not unlike what you and I are doing here today, and that is that it's designed to have an impact upon an audience, one or more audiences. And those audiences might be very local. You might do a presentation, uh, a PowerPoint presentation to your classmates or to the entire school. Uh, you might uh, write a story that gets published in the local uh, newspaper or shopping guide, or that's published in a uh, children's poetry magazine. So uh, audience is always very important. If it weren't for audience, you and I would not be here today. It, it certainly sounds like creativity um, and, and actually having a result from uh, some, some, looking at someone's skills is fair enough. But actually seeing a result is very important to your model and your conception of what it means to be gifted. Would you say that you concur with the work that I've seen on the threshold hypothesis that you actually have to have... Um, I think it's the the 2017 paper that I saw was you have to have an IQ uh, above 100, uh, but between 100 and 120, there there was no there's a, there's a correlation above 120. There's no correlation between creativity and IQ, meaning that you actually the the, the, the that you'll find plenty of people creative people above that 120 threshold. It's just not related to their IQ. Do do you think that work is quite solid? I I think that there's a certain point where, and this is where the above average ability comes in, a certain point uh, where you certainly have to be above average. The issue, though, is that I don't like to talk about that just in terms of <clears throat> uh, academic ability. Um, Steven Spielberg is a great example. His mother gave him a wind-up movie camera when he was about 12 years of age. Mm. He was not a good student in the traditional sense, by the way. And ever since then, all he ever wanted to do was make movies. And so uh, above average ability exists in a lot of areas. Uh, my, one of my hobbies is I'm a bread baker. And um, I'm probably not going to win any awards for making bread. But if you put me with a, um, 30 other people, I would probably be considered an above average ability bread maker. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to ever narrow it down to well is it a, between you know 110 and 120 as the threshold because in particular areas again my spielberg example and i could give you others uh, are certainly uh, important considerations for providing a child what i call the concept of or o-r-e and that stands for opportunities resources and encouragement but always, always, always in the area 
where there is a strong interest and strength. Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably important to uh, to let viewers know that um, whilst this threshold hypothesis does indicate that you know if you're scoring significant significantly below 100 on IQ test you're probably not doing much thinking and therefore you're not going to be very creative there's also a lot of neuroscientific research showing that IQs do dramatically change in your teenage years you know, it's often we're talking like one or two standard deviations up and down right so I think what your emphasis there on opportunities and encouragement is very important because if we're talking about that environment to facilitate IQ growth right that that's exactly what we need to to not lose out on you know, potential uh, you know, creative geniuses, right? Absolutely. Um, one thing I also wanted to pick you up on is uh, I, I really appreciate your emphasis on domain specificity because, I mean, the re research that I've seen indicates that I would say the vast majority of those identified as gifted using a variety of metrics and models, obviously including IQ, um, the vast majority of those people do not excel across the board, right? The idea of the globally gifted student, Ellen Winner at uh, Boston College, I think has written on this. Um, how, how important do you think it is to, to place the idea of domain specificity? Um, Very important. And uh, one of the things I have added in recent years to uh, the free ring conception is uh, Three other things that I think, because people have criticized at me, oh, Renzulli says all people are gifted. I've never said that. I personally don't know who is and who is not. But uh, in certain people, this doesn't, the, the, the rings don't come together in all people at certain times. When you look at biography, every person that was famous for something or other had up periods and down periods. And then the third thing relates to what you're saying about specificity, and that is within certain contexts. Um, and I believe that the people that have made great contributions, again, from young children uh, to Nobel Prize winners, have always worked within a very specific area or domain of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I was reading an article, the article the other day in the Wiley Handbook of Genius. It might have been um, Ellen Winner again, but um, it, it, the, the example used, again, we have to differentiate between gifted and talented. Talented usually refers to you know, the music, uh, music and the performing arts, but uh, the example was of, I think, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the, uh, the surname correctly, uh, Bruckner, the composer who famously didn't uh, discover his talent for uh, composing great symphonies until he was really in his 50s or 60s. Um, so uh, could you talk a bit about adults and uh, giftedness and actually discovering well, talent then? The conception is as true for preschool children through to adults as well. Uh, and, and that's why I believe that in the triad, we try to give lots of people, regardless of their age, some general enrichment experiences, and then always at the end saying, what are some ways that you would like to follow up on this experience? Uh, and uh, so I, I don't see a, an age-related thing here. I mean, it, when I read through 
Uh, so I've got this this great edition in front of me here, the the nature of human intelligence. Uh, Sternberg, um, I think, edited this, and you know I, there there are many different voices in uh, the gifted and intelligence literature in in this edition. Came out in twenty eighteen. When I read your work, um, I would say I would place you on the 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 much more optimistic side of the spectrum, especially when we talk about how many undiscovered gifted individuals there are out there. Could you talk about just what, what you think about that? Well, again, <clears throat> I think that if we do not provide youngsters with the, the opportunities to find an area of interest and with the skills on how they can become a creative, productive investigator in that world, that we're going to lose out on many children, uh, especially children who come from low-income and minority groups who generally get a very inferior memory-oriented education to try to grind up their scores here in America. I'm sure it's true in the UK uh, on a a standardized achievement test. And I'm not going to ever argue against the value of that. Certainly, we want to improve the basic skills of all children. However, I do believe that for youngsters to develop gifted behaviors, we've got to give them some, again, opportunities, resources, and encouragement to go beyond just simply memorizing information to do well on the next test. Why is it that most gifted children are actually from poor backgrounds? Well, I I don't know if if that's true or not. They come from all types of backgrounds. I mean, some of them obviously have had the best education and their parents read to them from the time they could open their eyes and all of those kinds of things. But there are also young people that haven't had those advantages. And I believe that a good school program, uh, we call our school model, our organizational model, the school-wide enrichment model, And what we try to do is to provide general enrichment for all students, sometimes in in things that we call enrichment clusters, other times right within the context of the regular curriculum, other times in clubs or after school or special programs. However, I do believe that it is important to find the things I mentioned earlier, a very strong interest, the energy, motivation, task commitment to follow through on that interest, and the importance of having an impact on some kind of audience. Do you think traditional schooling, um, when I say traditional, I mean probably in the Anglosphere, your country, my country, do you think it is um, antithetical to inculcating giftedness and actually uh, discovering it? Do you think this generally is the case? And again, I don't want to think that we're trying to discover if a child is gifted or not gifted. I want to try to find out which children are capable of developing gifted behaviors, again, at certain times and within certain contexts. Mm -hmm. A youngster who might do very, very well in in, uh, one genre or another in the several genres of written work. and uh, another youngster who might just be good at 
looking at a cartoon and coming up with a caption that makes the cartoon funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the activities that I use with children uh, in my work. Uh, I show them cartoons with no captions, and we have a little competition. And then we, what we'll even do is, is have them flash their cartoon up on a screen and then flash the caption up and see who gets the best laugh. And that basically, to me, is an example of a gifted behavior in a very particular area. Yeah, Even it's... newspapers have specialists. They have a person on every newspaper that's called the headline writer. And she or he reads the story and then comes up with four or five words that will cause someone to want to read the story. Yeah, it's very interesting, your, your conception of giftedness um, as, as potential behavior, because I, I was thinking the other day just how many areas, how many domains there are of everyday human interaction, domains which are important, um, whether they're economically valuable or socially valuable, but they might be so complex or generally not recognized or thought about or just taken for granted that we don't actually have a way of measuring them i mean comedy is a very intuitive example there but there there are ways of measuring it it's called do people laugh i mean that i think in in your work you could probably um in your model you could probably safely say that um someone could be very gifted uh, in terms of interpersonal skill right there must be people out there who are just able to understand exactly what you're thinking just by looking at the way your you know, your mouth twitches uh your your body language um and that's obviously a lot harder to identify than someone giving someone an iq test i agree yeah um do, do you think then it's safe to say that they're they're given a different society given a a different economy, right? Um, where you didn't have to basically rent yourself as a, as a wage slave. There would be consider- considerably more gifted behavior. I, I do believe that there would be. Um, I think that um, society is always faced with all kinds of problems. And uh, I do think that... Uh, Developing a a strong interest in one of the problems and then pursuing that in a fashion such as I've mentioned before uh, is probably going to produce, again, more people who have an impact in their area, both their cognitive academic area and even the area that they live in. We have young children today. Uh, who, uh, for example, the young girl from Sweden who spoke at the United Nations on the whole problem of climate change. And I'm sure that, you know, earlier on, she was talking that in her classroom or talking that to the city council in whatever uh, town or city she lives in. And so, again, it's thinking, feeling, and doing like the practicing professional, even at a a more junior level. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you follow someone like uh, Linda Gottfriedson, who actually, I think, in in an article in this uh, in Sternberg's edition, actually just says, you know, intelligence isn't even a useful concept. It's not even a scientific concept anymore. I mean, we have G, but intelligence itself has been redefined so often 
and so many things have been added and subtracted from it that we just need to dispense with this. I'm just if we're going to talk about you know pure processing power or you know the ability to think abstractly or rotate shapes in your head, that's you know there, there's there, there's a thing called G, and we can talk about that. Um, we can integrate that into our models of giftedness and gifted behavior. But in terms of intelligence, we should just do away with that idea scientifically. I, I don't think I don't think that there's any reason to do away with the measurement of cognitive ability uh, and uh, the, the uh, measurement of student achievement. That's useful information. However, I believe that there are other types of information, uh, in fact, that I have written about recently uh, in an article, I believe, in uh, Gifted Education International, where I talk about assessment for learning versus assessment of learning. Every test that we take, whether it's a test that a teacher gives in spelling on Friday afternoon or uh, a standardized achievement test, is asking children what they already know or know how to do. And I believe that assessment for learning looks at things like interest. Interest always leaves the list for me. I can do more with a child if I know that child's interests than if I don't. The second is how they like to learn best. Uh, some people refer to it as learning styles or instructional preferences. And I think that's important as well. Sitting and listening to lectures may not be the way that uh, we could create another Steven Spielberg. And um, I think that um, other things that are very important are what I, and I have instruments for all of these kinds of things. They're uh, built into our uh, technology program, or give the title, it's called Renzulli Learning. Uh, just go to renzullilearning.com. The University of Connecticut paid for its development and named it. But uh, the third thing we look at is um, how a person likes to express themselves. Again, one child will write a poem another about the same uh, topic. Another child could do a short story. Another child might want to do a cartoon. Another child might want to do a dramatization. And so I think that uh, those are three things that are very important. Other things that we're building into the system are uh, executive function skills, which have become more important, especially in the business and industrial world. We're in the process now of developing an instrument called All About Me, which sort of tries to assess a youngster's skills in areas like planning, organizing, communicating, things like that. Um, and I do think that um, there's a few other instruments that we have under development. One that looks at curiosity, which is really very close to the instrument, the interest instrument. Uh, and uh, Another one uh, looks at student engagement, uh, how a student gets turned on. Engagement is, is very difficult to identify. I always say, think of the first time that you fell in love with someone or something, your whole body chemistry changes. And so um, you might want to take a look at that article. Uh, I think it's called Assessment for Learning, colon, with something after the colon in the Gifted uh, Educational International, GEI, in the last year or two. 
one of the fascinating issues that we've touched on briefly is is that of underachievement uh, in the in the gifted population. Um, there's this idea that, again, I think Ellen Winner wrote about. I'm not sure whether it's original to her, but that you you kind of you see a lot of kids with a very high IQ uh, becoming. I think she refers to them as like practiced experts. Right? They just become very good technically. They become proficient technically at, I know, chess or maths or even something like writing, although that might be a bit more creative. Um, and this kind of prevents them from ever innovating. So I think she draws on uh, the termites, Lewis Terman's longitudinal study, and there are many others. Um, and you very rarely find someone with you know a 130 plus IQ even 150 160 who goes on to become from from prodigy to uh you know Nobel prize winning scientist is there anything you'd like to say about this peculiar um the uh Terman did a five volume series on the quote unquote gifted children 130 and above IQ that he studied the fifth volume uh, is uh, The Gifted Students at Midlife. And uh, I have a, a wonderful quotation from that volume. And if, we, if you want to pause for a second, I'll mm. find that quotation and actually... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be very useful. All right. Again, this is, <clears throat> this is from the, uh, the last volume in the series. And he says... A detailed analysis was, was made of the 150 most successful and 150 least successful men, notice that uh, no women were involved, uh, among the gifted persons in an attempt to identify some of the non-intellectual factors that affect success. Since the less successful students do not differ to any extent in intelligence as measured by tests, it is clear that notable achievement calls for a lot more than a high order of intelligence. And this is the part I like and why we're doing the research right now on executive function. Mm. The results of the follow-up study indicated that personality factors are extremely important determinants of achievement. The four traits on which the most and least successful groups differed most widely were persistence in the accomplishment of ends, integration toward goals, self-confidence, and freedom from inferiority feelings. In the total picture, the greatest contrast between the two groups is an all-round emotional and social adjustment and in drive to achieve. And again, that's what I tried to uh, point out in the importance of what I call uh, task commitment in my work. I mean, you mentioned this idea of executive function. I think this is actually a nice segue for us because, um, you know, what Terman is talking about there and what, what has been researched since is the the idea that actually gifted kids do very well you know, in, in the first few years of their life and they might have a mental age four, five, six, seven years ahead of their peers. 
And so when they're in the traditional school system, they're most of the time bored and outrunning everybody. And so they never have to develop executive skills, executive function. Um, I, I think this is a nice segue onto the arguments for gifted schools, exclusively gifted schools, and um, what your, your thoughts on that. Um, and again, where where um, traditional schooling goes wrong. Because w- when I read someone like uh, Mirica Gross, her, her book, Exceptionally Gifted Children, um, or someone like Joan Freeman here in the UK, her 35-year longitudinal study, what stands out for me is just the shocking amount of discrimination and abuse that the gifted, and by, by gifted I now mean you know, very high IQ, um, I'm using a more um, constrained definition, the, the the discrimination that these people suffer as children is 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 incredible. You know, we we've got stories of teachers ripping up poetry in front of students. Um, there seems to be this general negative affect towards the gifted in society. Anyway, seems to be exacerbated in the teacher uh, population. Um, what are your thoughts on on how to remedy this? Oh, again, um, I do not argue with various ways of organizing um, schools, or whether it's a separate school, whether it's a pull-out program, whether it's a Saturday morning special program. Um, However, my focus has been what we do pedagogically within those environments that makes a difference in the development of creative, productive giftedness. I'd like to also mention a, a book that you might want to take a look at by uh, an American uh, professor, Boston College, named Karen Arnold, and it's called Lives of Promise. And he has 16,000 pages of interviews with high school valedictorians. Do you have valedictorians in the UK? I think we have something similar, but I don't think there's a, uh, yeah, a direct crossover. In a graduating class, and this was high school gra- uh, graduates, the number one people in the class. And what she found was that they all went on to successful careers, whether they became accountants, whether they became scientists, writers, whatever it might be. But when she tried to examine how they made a major difference in whatever area they went into, the answer was none. And the reason I believe is that when all of your energy goes into getting the highest grades and the best grades and marks and reports that we typically associate with advanced academics, we squeeze out of the curriculum the opportunity to do a research project that uh, one little boy did, a 12-year-old did, in creating a simulated uh, roller coaster because he ran into a person with a disability that was unable to ride on a roller coaster. So he created a simulated one with a, a chair that vibrates. He sat on a roller coaster in the front row with a video camera and got all the sounds and ups and downs and everything. And then he went on to try to get roller coaster companies, manufacturers, and amusement park companies that have roller coasters to put this 
stimulation at the entrance so people with heart conditions or disabilities could actually experience riding a roller coaster in a safer environment. And so I believe that, uh, again, these are the kinds of things that are related to the pedagogy. An advanced course just learned more material faster, which is what most valedictorians do. They take AP courses. I'm sure you have those in the UK and honors courses and things like that. I don't argue against the value of that, but embedded in those courses should be opportunities for creative, productive giftedness, the type three that I mentioned earlier. So, okay, I'm going to try and uh, nail you down here then. You say you're you're not against um, anything like gifted schools. In the US, you do have quite a lot of gifted schools uh, which discriminate on the basis of IQ. What what are your... We don't have that. We don't have that many. There there are not as many. I I should I should be specific. I should say relative to us in the UK, where we've got none. (laughs) You know, we we obviously have the with the the private school system. You know, the the Eatons and the Harrows, which will offer scholarships and there'll be entrance exams. But um, I think it's a very different setup to the US, where you have schools like Pineview, for example, which seem to it seems from an outsider's perspective that. Uh, if you're born poor in the US with a 150 IQ in today's society, you're probably going to be okay. Would would you concur with that? Uh, I, I would say you, you'd be okay. Uh, and I must say that, that, first of all, the focus of my work has been on uh, developing uh, programs within any organizational mm. uh, setting that you might have Uh, and I believe that my goal has been to apply the pedagogy of gifted education to total school improvement because that's where most of the children go to school there are not children too many children around the world that are in a separate school for quote the gifted and I'm not going to argue against the value of those kinds of things But I do believe that um, my goal has been to create a culture in the school where enjoyment, engagement, and enthusiasm for learning Mm. are the hallmark of that school. And that there are many, many opportunities given to all children to engage in creative, productive, uh, gifted behaviors. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's important to note that um, it, it, it's not as if uh, I think you know, the the listener might might think that um, maybe we're talking past each other and that um, you're, you're, you that you might be saying that say the kid with a one fifty one sixty IQ who's going to a, a place like Pine View uh, and is doing kind of like the book learning but as you say just faster and, and more of it um, that that um, that that's kind of okay and, and that should be left alone. But actually, I think you would probably, I, I, I would certainly say, and I think you probably agree that you know, your, your research and your model of gifted education and, and pedagogy does have something to offer those children as well, right? Because um, there, there's something to be said for um, a kid of 150, 160 IQ who, let's say, loves the classics, you know, has learned ancient Greek and Latin and is a book learner and does just want to read more 
and go faster. Well, there's also something to be said for offering that child a more, you know, more opportunities to be creative, right? I, I would say it's very important uh, to, to offer the kinds of things that create uh, some useful, hopefully make the world a better place type of project yeah. than uh, just simply learning material to score well on a test. And become an academic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think about the, <laughs> it seems to be the perennial problem of uh, uh, giftedness in America, um, the, 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 the issue of closing down gifted programs. Ellen Winner, in her, I've, I've mentioned her many times in this uh, conversation, in her book, uh, I think it's called Gifted, gifted Children, 1996 or 1997 that came out, she opens the chapter on schools with a story of an American uh, mayor, um, uh, I think, uh, of uh, a, a very large city, um, possibly on the on the east coast, who wanted to close down a, a gifted and talented program. And it was funny because as I was reading this chapter, Bill De Blasio <laughs> in New York City was making a big fuss about saying we've got to get rid of the gifted program. And the reason given all the time it seems to be is that it it it, it uh, these programs disadvantage minorities um, and obviously people like people specialists in. Uh, gifted education point out that while it does tend to also dis disadvantage black, uh, Latino, right, Asian, uh, well, d depends what. I think that there are a number of places, not just New York, which I'm working with now with a new uh, mayor coming in and uh, hopefully a more open attitude toward our school-wide enrichment approach, which at one time in the uh, 80s was the citywide model. This is a political issue. Yeah. And you've got the parents of the, the high IQ kids that go to the select, especially high schools. Um, this is what's happening. Superintendents of schools are saying, this is such an issue that we're just going to get rid of the program and mm. we're going to quote unquote differentiate for all children, which basically oftentimes means more worksheets for slow learners and two extra books for, for, to read for smart learners. Uh, and I think that it, it's sort of throwing the baby out with bathwater. Uh, if I get rid of it, then I won't have parents of the kids that are gifted in and parents of low-income and minority uh, students who believe that their children should have some of these better opportunities in. Um, and uh, it's really a major problem, but it's a political problem. They just don't, if I, if I throw the program out, then I'm not going to have parents complaining. Do you think this is a problem that is, in America at least, more apparent on the left, you know, the egalitarian side of politics, that wants to cut the tall poppies down? Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard to say uh, it, i i don't know if it's just the a, a left or right political orientation that's influencing this as much as where their children go to school um and i do think that uh, it's a problem that really is i don't know if you've ever heard of the drowning man analogy in uh in law 
but uh, if two people are walking along beside a river and a person is out there drowning and one says, eh, I'm not a good swimmer, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, and he keeps walking. The other person said, oh, I've got to, I got to do something about it. He dives in and gets the man, but on the way back, the man comes loose from his arm and drowns. Who is actionable in a court? The man who said, I don't want anything to do with it, or the man that tried to help but didn't do the job that was to save that man's life. And that's the man that's going to court. Um, and so I think that policymakers, superintendents, and, or the chief officers in American schools say, if we don't have anything to do with it, we're not going to have any big problem. Mm. And um, it's a shame because I believe that uh, the pedagogy that we advocate can provide lots and lots of enrichment-oriented opportunities for all children. And with the right follow-up, some children who would never be identified because of their test scores are going to go on and do some very remarkable things uh, with their lives. Wasn't Winston Churchill once described as the naughtiest little boy in all of England? Uh, and thank goodness for Winston mm -hmm. Churchill. He saved our world. Um, and again, I also have built into my work um, suggestions that we give young people opportunities to do good things, not just make more money or uh, win a contest, but rather uh, apply their talents to uh, making the world a better place. And we can do that even beginning at a very early age. A group of children at the school where uh, my daughters went, uh, a young young classmate died of cancer, and they spent two years and raised a lot of funds and support to create a special garden in commemoration of this young person that died. I think that that's just an, a very local example of people learning to use their talents to, to do good things. We want to create more Winston Churchills and less Adolf Hitlers. It's funny that you mentioned Churchill because um, he was someone who was uh, held behind in uh, his, uh, I think, English class. He didn't, I don't think he progressed onto Latin. Um, so everybody else at the top of the class, top, top of English, went on to do, I think, Latin, maybe ancient Greek, if they were very good. And uh, Churchill, I think, was held back three times. And I think he says in, in his memoir somewhere that this was the best thing that ever happened to him at school because the teacher happened to be especially brilliant, very charismatic man who relished the opportunity to take these boys who weren't naturally gifted uh, at writing a, 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 you know, a presentation at the English language, didn't have a natural facility, and to to hone their skills. And so <laughs> Churchill ended up doing the course three times compared to, to once. And that may, like this is one of the most important orators, possibly the, the best orator of the, uh, of the 20th century. When you, when you listen to those speeches, it's, it's in, in, incredible, isn't it? I'm just finishing a thousand-page biography of him. He's one of my great heroes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think his uh, his biography is is very much ties into um, 
your your model of uh, giftedness if uh, if if he if he wasn't allowed to progress because he his oratory skills weren't um up to scratch then i think uh, we we probably are putting too much weight on on uh, things like iq and uh, raw metrics okay so i guess this brings us into uh, the end game here where i ask you how we should actually view gifted children uh, in terms of, well, whether they are to be thought of as children with just different special needs, right? So we have Down syndrome children, uh, severely autistic children, and uh, you've got children who are capable of in, uh, amazing gifted behavior or incredible uh, mathematics from a young age, and they need comparably um, precise support. Um, or whether the primary lens through which we view these children is um, in the context of China's commitment to radical meritocracy in a way. They have the Gokao, this famous national exam, where they are basically determined to find anybody who is a, in, in the, again, the narrow sense of giftedness, a, a processing powerhouse, right? And they, 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 that person will be fast-tracked through the, the, uh, the leading institutions in China, the civil service, the government, right? So um, at a time when it's, it, as I say, it sounds like American uh, politicians have, have uh, always uh, enjoyed cutting gifted programs. But it, at a time when this seems to be, this, this attack seems to be renewed, it seems to have more vigor than um, before. And America is, is, is a declining power. How do you think we should view this immense resource? Do we view it primarily as an ethical duty? Or do we think, God, we are missing out here? Well, I, I think that we should view it as intellectual and creative capital. Right. And one thing that uh, all politicians are concerned with is the economy. And I believe that uh, there are social and cultural issues that they should be more concerned with. But I think that what causes a country to grow is the intellectual and creative capital that is a result of the kinds of education system that we provide. I would like to see us not get rid of the word giftedness or gifted, but change it to an adjective rather than a noun. Marks gifted or not gifted. Uh, it, rather, I would like to see it related to the development of gifted behaviors and a gifted program. Notice we call it a gifted program. In that context, it's an adjective. And I do think that we, we need to keep the word because of considerations of especially financial support and legislative action. But at the same time, I think that we should not think of it so much in the labeling. You have to have a G stamped on your forehead before I'll give you any special or opportunities, resources, and encouragement. And again, paying a little bit more attention to developing those things that I mentioned, assessment for learning rather than assessment of learning, and giving kids uh, 
opportunities to develop those assessment or learning skills is what would be the most important mission of the next area in gifted education. So I've got a few quick fire questions for you. The first one is, what's the biggest thing that you've changed your mind on over the course of your career? Wow, that would be difficult. I've changed my mind on a number of things, um, but uh, it's hard to come up with one right off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that uh, when I got into the business, the gifted business, it was strictly a cutoff score operation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I certainly my uh, had a lot of criticism with the three ring and triad articles in the uh, 70s. One person even wrote an article, Renzuliitis, a national disease in gifted education. My three ring article is now the most widely cited article in the field, he says, without a lot of modesty. <laughs> and I do believe that Many other people, including my dear friend Bob Sternberg and Howard Gardner, have also fallen in with a much more flexible approach to looking at talent potential in young people. And I do believe that uh, I also want to see schools become more engaging and enjoyable places for all kids. Anything you enjoy, you work hard at, you do better at, because Mm -hmm. it's fun. Uh, I think that if we had a good model for gifted education, it would be extracurricular activities. Who goes to soccer or football, as you call it in Europe, and who goes to uh, drama? Uh, and we don't. If we exchange those two people, say, I really want to go to, to uh, football. Uh, the other person says, I really want to go to drama, but we're going to switch you around we will have failed both of those people. And so uh, I do believe that in an extracurricular activity, you always do a product or performance or presentation. There is a football game on Saturday, or there's going to be a play on Friday night that all the parents are going to come to, or there's going to be a school newspaper that the kids put out. And so I think that, uh, again, that is following the the modus operandi of the practicing professional and why would kids practice their play five afternoons a week for three months unless they were going to go on stage one night and present the play and why would the young people practice football uh every day if there weren't wasn't going to be a competition on saturday uh and so um that that's the way i'd like to see the direction go and uh, there's also a lot of personalization in the pedagogy that we provide people in extracurricular activities no you should be a a a forward or a passer or uh, a defense person in, in football no i think you should take this part because it involves some singing and you've got a good voice so we we personalize within the context of those things. Not every child is doing the same thing at the same time, which is what most of general education is like, regardless of the level of young persons that we are working with. 
you know, it's interesting that um, you know, we we didn't really speak much about the this this idea of uh, you you have to be interested. You have to be interested in something in order to to really most of the time be good at it, to excel at it, to develop that that skill. And when you when you take if if an alien were looking at the way we organize schools, I, it would just be bizarre. Like if you asked me now to go and study, I don't know, chemistry or physics, something that I've not really got any interest in, and do it for five, six years and then do an exam. Obviously I wouldn't do well, even if, you know, you, you gave me if you if you gave me an incentive, you know, ten thousand pounds, I'd probably get a higher grade, right? But it, it's 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 bizarre that we we set we almost set children up to fail, don't we? We we set these bizarre st- tests. Again, as we said, we're not we're not uh, overly critiquing standardized tests. They have a place, but obviously, when you give children ten, eleven, twelve subjects, they're probably not going to be inter- interested in the vast majority of them. And then we say, oh well, because you failed most of them, you are clearly uh, inferior. You you might be stupid. You've got nothing to offer. I mean, this is just very peculiar. Well, I think that, again, we have to have built into our pedagogy opportunities to get children interested and then give them more resources and support. Let's suppose that 10-year-old Mark has someone come into his science class and do an experiment in chemistry where they mix stuff and have one of those volcanoes blow up. And all of a sudden, Mark, who's never had any interest in chemistry, says, wow, I'd like to do something like that. One of the things I say is that any type one we should make as fascinating and interesting, whether it's having a speaker, whether it's a field trip, whether it's nowadays with all of the things we can get on the Internet and virtual reality, all of those kinds of things. And while we might there might have been 30 kids in Mark's class watching that, that a chemist do the uh, making the volcano explode. Only Mark and two other kids said, wow, I'd like to do more about that. And so that's why we built uh, type one becomes more important in getting kids interested. Uh, it could be a, a book. Uh, when I was in uh, my master's degree program, uh, my advisor gave me a manuscript to read uh, and the, to give her some uh, talking points on it. What that means is that she'll get the $100 honorarium, and I will, as it turned out, stay up all night because I was so fascinated with that book. The book was called Creativity and Intelligence by Getzels and Jackson. Jackson. And uh, then I started reading more and more on the topic and eventually went in the direction that I went in my work. And so staying up all night to get some talking points for my teacher so she could get a $100 honorarium actually created the, the major direction of my career. And uh, at about the same time, a man came out with a thing called the Minnesota Tests of Creative Thinking. That was Paul Torrance. He was at the University of Minnesota. It later became the world-famous Torrance Test of Creative Thinking. That was supposed to go into space. It did go into space, but the Challenger crashed. It was supposed to orbit the Earth forever. And um, so I believe that um, those are the kinds of things that we need to do to promote interest in young people. When I say interest, 
Okay, well, what happens if a kid doesn't have an interest? Well, we create interest. In mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a bizarre notion that children of all people do not have interests. Um, what's the mo- what, who are the most important scholars to have influenced you over your lifetime in your field? Well, well certainly uh, Paul Torrance was one. We became good friends as, as well as working together in different projects. Uh, James Gallagher, Jim Gallagher, uh, because of his wisdom and savvy in knowing how to get things done politically. Um, In in more recent years, certainly Bob Sternberg and Howard Gardner have been a strong influence uh, on my work. And uh, as I have been on theirs, I'm happy to say, um, I think that uh, Harry Passau, who was at the uh, Teachers College, Columbia University, was the first person that ever made a significant effort to try to provide some of these kinds of things for uh, low-income and minority students. And he and Miriam Goldberg uh, were very, very influential in steering what later became my interest. Uh, Lita Hollingworth, who started the program for high ability children in New York and the, the project method that she devised really influenced my work on type three. And also this was during the great depression and um, she had some children. I had a reunion of these people at my summer Institute called Confortude a while back. Uh, she had some children who were dropped off during the depression with a chauffeur driven limousine and some children that she had to give two nickels to, one nickel to get home on the subway, and one nickel, a nickel is an American five-cent piece, another nickel to come back the next day. And uh, that she also had a sensitivity for the fact that there were uh, African-American students that would have never, ever had this opportunity Mm. unless she had different ways of finding them, which she did with teacher recommendations and things like that. So th- those are some of the major major people that I think uh, have influenced me, uh, and uh, I think that uh, the, the work of Ellen Winter, who you mentioned, has been very influential, um, and uh, a, a few others. But those those are probably some of the main ones. Um, okay, so the the last quick fire questions: What is your favorite fiction book and your favorite nonfiction book? Oh, well, uh, my favorite nonfiction book is, uh, again, I'm just finishing uh, the the Winston Churchill biography, and I've loved every minute of the 1,100 pages. Uh, My favorite non... Oh, and and, um, The uh, Silent uh, Spring is a favorite nonfiction book. Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson. The courage of someone to take on the chemical companies, uh, and really, uh, I believe that the world is a better place for uh, that book. Mm. Um, another one uh, that I am very fond of, in fact, I have it right here in my desk. I read it, pick it up and read it every once in a while, called History, Psychology, and Science. And it's just a little bit about the importance of these things in, in improving the world. And finally... Uh, what's your advice to young people perhaps leaving school and uh, heading into the big wide world today? 
Well, I think that uh, my advice is something that we've been talking about, and uh, that is uh, do something that makes a difference uh, for the betterment of the local food bank in, in, in your town or the environment in, in general in the world. I, I do think that um, so much of education is geared toward going out and making a good living, and I would not argue against the value of that. But I do think uh, that we live on a very frail planet, and there are a lot of problems locally, nationally, internationally. And um, in order to promote greater understanding, cooperation among leaders of nations, and leaders of small businesses and everything in between, um, we have to have some concern for things other than just increasing my income or increasing my my prestige. Brilliant, uh, Joseph. Thank you very much for uh, for agreeing, agreeing to do this. It was uh, uh, a very informative discussion. I hope people got a lot out of it. Um, I've been a longtime reader of your your work and. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate you uh, talking to me today. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I like any kind of presentation where I don't have to show a PowerPoint slide. <laughs>